Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Welcome to the new year with the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for patiently waiting for our return. We hope that you've all been having a lovely new year. And in coming up with this week's episode, we had much time to sit and reflect on things that we've done before. Um, We really wanted to return to the basics, and apparently for us, that means Bach. We do have several Bach episodes already, of course. He is a really rich vein. (laughs) Um, But we're getting really basic this week with a deep dive into Bach's first suite for solo cello in G major. And even if you don't know what it was, we're sure you've heard this piece before. So let's shed some basic light on some (laughs) basic Bach's life while he was writing this piece and what the music is trying to convey. One might argue that once we get into this, it's much more complex than it might initially seem. Indeed. (laughs) So we'll start our story today in the middle of Bach's life, sometime in the late 17-teens to early 1720s. And this is when Bach was freed from his tempestuous employment with the Duke of Weimar and started his more fulfilling job with Prince Leopold of Cotten. Under the prince, Bach had much artistic freedom. Although he still wrote sacred works, he had unusual freedom to also create secular works. Some were for the violin-playing prince, and others were just for pure musical enjoyment. However, it wasn't all sunny times in Kutten. The prince had a tradition of going away to the spas at Carlsbad for months at a time, and of course would take much of his court employees with him. All the comforts of home... Away from home. That actually you have sounds to take nice. Your resident composer with you to the exactly. spa. <laughs> and if you recall back in our roast, we will say, of Mr. Bach Comes to Call when we talked about this episode in his life, it sounds as though he had a great time drinking beer with the prince at the spa. <laughs> and maybe he had a great time at the spa with the prince drinking beer, but it was after one such fateful trip. That lasted over four months. When he arrived home, he found that his wife, Maria Barbara, had died. And no one had bothered to try to send a message to the unhaving Bach or mm-hmm. the prince. And this is just so silly because, okay, sure, they didn't have telephones. They did not have cars. They didn't have a way to make fast communication. But this was literally four months. It does not take four months to get anywhere in Germany from town to town, even on foot. So someone could have sent him word before he just got back to find out. Like, they could have tried. Someone dropped the ball here. Nonetheless, Bach did find happiness again, for about a year later, he remarried to Anna Magdalena, a singer under the prince's employment, and they had a very fruitful marriage, both including children and, of course, musical output. 
And so that brings us up to speed and to the composition of the cello suites, of which there are actually six. Unfortunately, no original Bach manuscript survives. The closest thing that we actually have is a copy that was transcribed by Anna Magdalena. Now, one might be tempted to think that if there's no original, but only something in Anna's writing, could she have possibly been the true author of these wonderful suites? Ooh. And although that's a wonderfully progressive thought, the answer unfortunately has to be no. Now, of course, Anna was a proficient musician, but the counterpoint and the extensive knowledge of cello tunings used throughout the suites had to have come from someone who had spent half their life honing such skills. But it is thanks to Anna Magdalena that these pieces are even known today. The suites were not published during Bach's lifetime, and it wasn't actually until Anna's surviving manuscript of the works was actually discovered that they were then published in 1824. But even then, they still remained almost completely unknown. Some Romantic-era cellists used them as etudes to hone their playing skills, but they were never performed publicly. At least, they weren't until a young cellist at the turn of the century introduced them to the world. Pablo Casals was just a child in 1890 when he found a copy of the suites in a used bookstore. He took the music home, practiced and perfected it for decades, and finally showed the world the power of the cello suites in concert performances. He even recorded them in the 1930s, thus really solidifying them in the cultural zeitgeist. And with that, the cello world all felt these pieces were a true gem in the cello canon. Everyone started learning them, and now almost every notable recording solo cellist has put out a landmark recording. Yo-Yo Ma, generally one of the more pop culture classical musicians of our time, actually has several recordings of the suites. To also help solidify the cello suites in the minds of the general populace, during the late 1990s and even into the 2000s, cello itself as an instrument became quote, favored as a solo instrument. And this is, of course, alongside the piano and the violin. If you'll ask most people to name an instrument that they like to listen to on its own, a lot of people will name the cello. It has a rich, sonorous tone that isn't too oppressive to the senses, yet it can create incredible emotion. It's a perfect storm for mass appeal. So, the cello and the Bach cello suites have been put to numerous uses in pop culture, from movie soundtracks, to documentaries, to even advertisements. But with popularity, of course, comes problems and questions. Chiefly, how should the cello suites be performed? There is a bit of spectrum of performance practice, which can really go for any work, but is especially suited to discussing Baroque music. On one side, there are the scholarly and historic practices that strive to make a modern performance sound as close to what Bach would have attended in the Baroque period as possible. The other side prefers something more interpretive. These performers want to bring out certain feelings from the music, putting their own spin on the emotion that Bach wrote. And neither is right or wrong. They're just different, and often a performer lands somewhere between the two ideals. 
What makes this more of a discussion, especially for Baroque music than for, you know, say romantic or especially modern music where we have living composers who can actually be consulted about their performances, um, is that the Baroque music often didn't have specific stylistic markings written in. So it really is up to the performer to decide on the dynamics and in the case of the cello on the fingerings and bowings and of course tempos. Also up for debate is ornamentation. It was standard in the Baroque style to add ornaments to decorate the composer's music. However, there is some evidence that Bach disliked this practice and intended solo works such as these cello suites to be simplistic, thus letting his counterpoint shine through. But we don't even have Bach's original manuscript, so we can't be sure of exactly what he intended. And with all things that are striving to be, quote, historically accurate, whether it be art, building, cooking, really any craft or skill, the best anyone can hope for is historically adequate. We take our best guess based on research and examples, but ultimately we make a decision based on the resources available to us in our modern age. So let's take a quick look at perhaps the most famous movement out of those of the first cello suite, which is the first movement, the prelude. Of course, a suite refers to a stylized dance suite. We've talked about this before, where all the movements of the suite are types of dances, but they are opened up with a prelude, and it is rather non-dance inspired. It's meant to set the mood and the key for the rest of the suite, which Bach does beautifully. And speaking of the key, we are in G major. What a nice key. Indeed. <laughs> Bach opens up the movement with an arpeggiated theme that will be reworked throughout the process of the movement. It, of course, starts on tonic G major. The next measure moves to the subdominant, which is the fourth of the scale, which in this case is C major. Bach makes this transition by utilizing common notes within both chords, in this case the note G. He is able to keep the cello playing the G as the lowest note of the arpeggio, you'll hear that on the downbeats, while the other notes above it change from B and D that complete the tonic arpeggio to the C and E of an inverted fourth arpeggio. And of note, Bach also uses a B in the upper part of the arpeggio melody as a passing tone. The measure after that gets a little fancy. The G in this case is not serving a purpose in the chord. Rather, since we've been hearing it so often in the previous measures, Bach is able to use it as essentially a drone note, also known as a pedal tone. The chord we're actually using here is the dominant 7, or 5-7, or the D major chord with the 7th note added in. Just whatever language you want to speak about the chords today. We don't care your terminology. We'll give you all the <laughs> options. <laughs> yes, and, and as a side note, I think it's wonderful how much we can get out of even a, such a granular measure-by-measure measure analysis of someone like Bach. <laughs> we told you it might get complex, even though it yes, may indeed. seem basic. But finally, thanks to the propelling motion of that dominant seventh and the tonic G pedal tone, we are able to easily resolve back into that satisfying tonic G major. And this is a actually very standard progression, a one, four, five, one. <laughs> 
from this first outset of the theme, Bach then takes the motif of the arpeggios and leads us through various different keys. It flows along without distinct phrases, each key flowing into the next. The next measure deceptively starts with the same pedal G, but we've modulated with common tones yet again, and this time we've made it to E minor, which is the minor sixth of G major, of which G happens to be the third in the E minor triad. And for a while, that's actually the last time we hear the G in the bass. From that E minor, we bounce down to A major, which is a fifth below it. And from there, we go to D major, which is a fifth below that. So are you picking up on what's going on here? I think so. That's right. It's the circle of fifths. A great way to add never-ending momentum to a piece. (laughs) If all this theory talk is giving you a headache, let's take a quick break to talk about our feelings. In the upcoming section, Bach uses diminished chords, the ultimate tension builders, and then allows them to resolve. This tension and release make for a very stormy feel. We're pulled this way and that way, and we've lost our way back to the tonic. And in addition to that, Bach also starts varying that motif pattern on the arpeggios. So instead of having the upward arpeggio that then bounces back downwards, he now has the upward arpeggio and kind of catches us off guard with an upward scalar pattern instead. And in the next measure, he changes the status quo as well. Instead of keeping the same pedal tone, in this case the C sharp, he actually moves down chromatically to C natural. This is actually the first instance of chromatic movement within this piece, and it really adds an interesting new texture. After that, we get what could be thought of as a cadenza. There is a pause. Again, first we're hearing that sort of thing in this piece, which is then followed by an entirely scalar passage without any of the big leaping arpeggios to be found. However, Bach does include more of the chromatic movements in these passages. So this is not marked as a cadenza, but it's the kind of place that a performer's judgment of phrasing is put to the test. Without the big grounding pedal tones in this section to direct the harmony, the performer has to help guide the listener through by picking note groupings, special notes to highlight, and any possible deviations of tempo, and none of which is under the direction of Mr. Bach. But after we muddle through that, Bach does bring us out into a new section. Here, instead of a low pedal tone, we actually have a high pedal tone on A. For those keeping score at home, we have actually entered into the dominant key D major, and A is the dominant fifth of that. (laughs) 
So the notes dance around this upper A for a bit until deciding on an upward chromatic direction and our pedal tone slightly shifts down to our new tonic of D. From this D major, we finally get to resolve back to our original key of G major. This time, Bach has turned the arpeggio pattern upside down. The pedal tone, G, is two octaves above our initial tone from the beginning, and this time the arpeggios move downward. After one measure of celebration for being back in G, the next measures return to D major, but only to serve the purpose of moving the chord progression from 5 to 5-7, and then we finally do get to end back on G major with a triple stopped chord on G major with the lowest G, the highest G, and the major third B in the middle. <laughs> so that was... A bit more complex than it might have seemed, but it really is a beautiful piece, even if you don't care about the theory. You know, who needs all that? Just listening to it, it's wonderful, and it does deserve the popularity that it now has. Indeed, and, and I think when it comes to pieces like this from composers like Bach, a lot of times they didn't always set out to make the most beautiful single piece of music that they could. That was simply a byproduct of them experimenting with how they could twist these theoretical elements into new and exciting ways. And so I think that on, you know, you can listen to this once with no knowledge of the theory and appreciate it. And then you can have some knowledge of the theory and listen to it again with a critical ear and appreciate a piece like this in an entirely different way. Mm-hmm. And not to drag fugues into this, because, again, who wants to talk about all that theory? But, you know, this is kind of like a fugue in that, you know, he takes his first little melody. Um, he kind of has little interjections of it as we go through, but it goes through all sorts of different keys and comes out, you know, the same but changed at the end. I think it would be fun to fugify the cello suite. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well, if you'd like to fugify the cello suite, then you can get together with a group of your favorite family, friends, and like-minded colleagues, and perhaps put this episode on background while you wrestle with your own theoretical complications. Um, and in the meantime, do tell them to listen to the podcast themselves. Leave us good reviews on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us, you know on our socials, all that good stuff. Um, new year, new outro. This is uh, great. I don't think this it's is only been a couple weeks. <laughs> it's only been a couple weeks and I've forgotten how to do it. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Cello Suite Number no. 1 in G Major was performed by Colin Carr. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.